This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 25. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, can you be sued for the questions that you ask in your depositions? Now, before we get into the topic, I just wanted to thank all of you uh, for subscribing since we began the podcast. We had a soft launch in late October of 2020 and then began actively promoting it January 1, and the number of subscribers has absolutely skyrocketed. So I take that as a sign that you're finding real value in the topics and in the practical and actionable advice in each episode. As I've said, each episode is designed to address a single topic, and we make the title of each episode very descriptive. So if it's something you'll find useful, you can listen and benefit from it. If it's not, you can skip it. We'll never have episodes that run two or three hours long and that cover multiple topics, so you've got to listen to a lot of stuff before you get to the thing that you wanted to listen to. The idea in the way we've designed it is to allow you to get in and get out with information you didn't have before you heard an episode. In each episode, we also have the citations and parentheticals for every case we mention, which will always give you a huge start on the research as needed. So thank you very much. We very much appreciate the support and the very successful launch that we've had since January 1. All right, back to the topic today. Can you be sued for the questions that you ask in a deposition? The answer, unfortunately, is yes, depending on whether your jurisdiction recognizes the litigation privilege, whether your jurisdiction extends this privilege to depositions, and whether the privilege is absolute or qualified in your jurisdiction in the context of depositions. And of course, it also depends heavily on the questions that you asked. All right, so let's unpack this. The litigation privilege, as it's called in every jurisdiction, is a state law judicially created doctrine, not a statute, that stands for the proposition that lawyers have immunity against lawsuits for what they say in judicial proceedings or in quasi-judicial proceedings and sometimes administrative proceedings. The doctrine's been around since the late 1400s and early 1500s, where it's said to have first surfaced in England. You'll find some great discussion about its origins in the Myers case, a Florida Supreme Court case from 1907, believe it or not, and in the Pepperdine Law Review article cited in the show notes. Both of those are great sources of information uh, on this doctrine. The idea of the doctrine is that because of our status as litigators, we should be able to prosecute claims or defend claims without fear that our actions as trial lawyers will harm our own personal interests. Because if we're afraid we're going to be sued for what we say in a courtroom or in filings or in judicial proceedings, we just might not be as zealous. So the courts say we get that protection from this privilege because that in turn allows the adversarial system to work, which is critical to our system of justice as a whole. So we can speak freely and pursue the interests of justice, subject only to the oversight in large part by judges and the bars that regulate us. We don't have to worry about what we say for fear we're going to be sued for defamation or something worse. If litigators in particular have to worry about what we say in our court proceedings or in our papers or in depositions, the judicial system is going to be a lot less effective. So we have that shield, the litigation privilege. But the privilege is not consistent across all jurisdictions. So it's critical that you understand how and when it applies in your jurisdiction. Now, most jurisdictions divide the litigation privilege into two categories, absolute and qualified. Generally speaking, if you're in a courtroom in front of the judge, the litigation privilege gives you absolute immunity 
from suit for what you say. Papers you file with the clerk's office, same thing. Generally speaking, you have absolute immunity for what you say in a courtroom and in your court filings. Virtually all states have some version of absolute immunity in judicial proceedings. Now I say virtually all states because in Louisiana, at least according to the 2014 decision in the Sullivan case, which is quoted in the show notes, lawyers have only a qualified, not an absolute, privilege for statements made in the course of litigation. The Freeman case from Louisiana also makes this point, saying, quote, In other jurisdictions, a defamatory statement by an attorney in a judicial proceeding is absolutely privileged if the statement has some relation to the proceeding. But in Louisiana, the privilege is a qualified one. Also in the state of Georgia, there are some quirks in how that state applies this privilege. That state has adopted a statute that provides conditional or qualified privilege to lawyers in the course of litigation. We've cited that statute in the show notes, so you want to take a look at that and do your homework as needed if you're practicing in Georgia. So absolute protection in virtually all jurisdictions if you're in a courtroom, the theory being that wildly improper statements in a courtroom are less likely because the judge is presiding and less likely because those improper statements can be immediately addressed by the court. But the further you venture from a courtroom, the greater the likelihood, the cases seem to say, that your privilege may be watered down to a qualified one, where your protection depends on what you said and how it bears on the issues in the case. Some courts have applied only a qualified privilege to depositions. But as long as the questions or comments you've asked have some bearing on the issues, you're likely to benefit from that qualified privilege. That includes questions asked by an examining attorney while the deposition is in progress, conversations in hallways with witnesses or other lawyers on breaks during the deposition, even arguments between the litigators themselves that devolve into shouting matches in the middle of the deposition. All of those are protected. This protection extends to depositions because most courts have said that the litigation privilege covers judicial proceedings, and those same courts have generally held that depositions notwithstanding the absence of a judge, are judicial proceedings or at least quasi-judicial proceedings entitled to the protection. But again, not all. About 10 days ago, around January 6 of 2021, a Florida mid-level appellate court ruled that a deposition is not a judicial proceeding. So that's raised some eyebrows among litigators as to whether they actually enjoy the litigation privilege for things they do and say in depositions. In that case, the Nunez decision, N-U-N-E-S, cited in the show notes, an employee who was subpoenaed to testify in a deposition testified against his employer, and he was fired not long after for doing so. So the employee sues under a Florida statute that says, thou shalt not retaliate against a person who testifies under subpoena in a judicial proceeding. Florida appellate court says, well, there's no judge in a deposition, so it's not a judicial proceeding. So the employee gets no protection under that statute because the employee testified in a deposition, not in a judicial proceeding. So the order dismissing his case was affirmed. Again, that's raised some alarm bells because most jurisdictions extend the litigation privilege to judicial proceedings or quasi-judicial proceedings, which almost always is interpreted to include depositions. Here, uh, the appeals court very clearly and very definitively said a deposition is not a judicial proceeding. Now, to be clear, this case involved a dispute about testimony given by an employee, not questions asked by a lawyer or behavior of lawyers in depositions. So the 
issue of the litigation privilege wasn't really on point, but it's still reason to give litigators concern who practice in Florida because the ruling was so definitive in declaring depositions not judicial proceedings. All right, so the order dismissing that case, by the way, was affirmed. So let's talk about uh, the claims that get filed against litigators as a result of deposition examinations or conduct, and then we'll look through some of the cases where lawsuits were actually filed against a lawyer as a result of questions they asked in a deposition. First, as you can imagine, litigators generally get sued for questions or behavior in a deposition where the lawyer made comments or asked questions that appeared designed to embarrass, humiliate, inflict emotional distress, or harm a deponent or lawyer's reputation in a significant way. For the most part, I suspect that lawyers that get sued as a result of deposition examinations probably knew what they were doing and decided to take a calculated risk that the benefit of the particular questions or comments outweighed any conceivable risk of litigation. Sometimes I think litigators also have a false sense of security that they're simply immune from suit. And so they get some information they think might really do some damage to the confidence of a deponent or opposing lawyer, and they let it rip. But before you start dropping bombs on folks like that, especially if the information that you let rip isn't directly related to the litigation or in fact has no relationship to the litigation, you gotta make sure what your jurisdiction says are the outer bounds of your protection. In many jurisdictions, and again, you'll need to research yours, comments or questions that just have nothing to do with the case at hand are the ones that are most likely to result in a subsequent lawsuit against you. Ultimately, whether you win that lawsuit or not is probably a lot less important than avoiding that litigation against you in the first place. You can waste an awful lot of personal time and money fighting a case just to establish that your behavior was privileged. You might be able to get a case dismissed on the pleadings if the complaint against you contains enough detail for a judge to say, yes, a qualified or absolute litigation privilege applies. If in your jurisdiction the litigation privilege is true complete immunity, you might well be able to get the complaint dismissed. But if in your jurisdiction the litigation privilege is in the nature of an affirmative defense, you're probably going to have to slog through the discovery process and at least get to the summary judgment stage before you have a hope of getting out of that lawsuit. In terms of the claims most likely to be filed against you as an examining lawyer following a deposition, the reported decisions in this area tell us that the most common claims are defamation, abusive process, intentional or negligent infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, negligence in general, or interference with a contractual or advantageous business relationship. So fundamentally, these are all claims that in effect assert that you or I, as the examining lawyer, purposely attempted to inflict emotional distress or to damage someone's reputation or business. So let's take a quick look at some of the cases that make the point. And keep in mind that in all of the examples I'm about to give you, these were subsequent lawsuits that followed an underlying case where an examining lawyer asked deposition questions or said something that was perceived as beyond the pale and the lawyer wound up getting sued. I don't focus on the outcome because to me, it's almost irrelevant. In fact, in the majority of these cases, courts ruled that the examining lawyers did enjoy a qualified or absolute privilege and dismissed the claims against them. Not all, but most of them. But the point here is that it's important to appreciate the kinds of things that you may ask or do that will change you from a lawyer to a litigant 
and specifically a defendant. All right, so in the Koch case, K-O-C-H, the plaintiff there alleged that the defendant lawyer in depositions associated her video businesses with child pornography. Now that was a decision out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, so it will give you a sense for how long that case remained pending before the decision eventually was resolved in favor of the examining lawyer. In the Rabinowitz case, a New Jersey state court case, the examining lawyer was sued for the tort of outrage and both intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress for asking the father of a deceased newborn whether he suspected the involvement of his wife in the murder, negligent homicide, or abuse of their deceased infant. In that case, the husband had volunteered the term murder or negligent homicide in describing his suspicions about the death of his newborn child. The original action, the underlying case, was a malpractice or negligence case against a doctor who apparently saw the newborn twice and sent the child home twice before the child then died. So the attorney who wound up getting sued for her deposition questions was simply following up on the husband's own use of those terms in the deposition. Now, Eventually, an appeals court determined that the lawyer was respectfully doing her job and was duty-bound to at least ask some follow-up questions given the way that the husband had described himself the passing of his child. Even so, it was clear that the line of questioning, even if legitimate, was one that predictably would burn the husband to his core and that might have been expected to trigger a reaction like it did. In the lawsuit that was filed against the lawyer, which was eventually dismissed, the complaint made it clear that the feelings of the family were extraordinarily bitter. In fact, the complaint referred to the line of questions as outrageous and inhumane, as being so reprehensible, despicable, nasty, venomous, malevolent, and horrid as to violate the most basic foundation of humanity and decency. And those are quotes from the decision as to what the complaint said. The complaint also described the examination as a black-hearted attack as one that had been calculated to cause severe emotional distress, humiliation, and one that offended all norms of civilized behavior and decency. So very, very strong reaction to those follow-up questions. Now here's something for you. Would you have asked the same follow-up questions? Or might you have let the comments go, perhaps thinking that the use of such language by the father, such terms as murder or negligent homicide, really simply reflected the pain of parents who had just lost a newborn child after just a few days. So might you have let that go? Might you have asked the questions in a more gentle way, not saying that it had to be done, but might you have tried a different approach? Might you have tried to gather that information to the extent you thought there was an issue involving the spouse? Might you have tried to gather the information in a different way or from a different source rather than the husband face-to-face in a deposition. All right, next case. In the Sushit case, that's S-U-C-H-I-T-E, filed in the U.S. Southern District of Florida, the defendant lawyers were sued for retaliation under the Fair Labor Standards Act after asking questions in the deposition about the plaintiff's, and there were multiple plaintiffs, immigration status. The opinion says the lawyers asked about the plaintiff's status, about how they entered the U.S., and about the use of coyotes, which I take as slang for folks that helped facilitate their crossing the border, whether they swam, and what they were told to do if they encountered Border Patrol. 
Some might say this is a somewhat less emotional examination than the one involving the death of the newborn, but it still led to litigation against the defense lawyer, and I should mention against the defense lawyer's client as well. In the Sullivan case uh, cited in the show notes, which was decided by a Louisiana State Court of Appeal, an attorney sued the opposing counsel for defamation, where the lawyer asked questions to the attorney's wife in a deposition about her husband's alleged affair with his law partner. In the Utterback case out of the Southern District of Mississippi, the examining lawyer in a deposition was sued for, among other things, a line of questioning to the plaintiff's employer about the fact that the plaintiff was a convicted felon and disbarred lawyer. The plaintiff said this line of examination served no purpose but to shame and punish him, and he sued the lawyer for defamation, invasion of privacy, tortious interference with a business relationship, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. In the McCullough case, a Florida mid-level appellate decision, the examining lawyer in a deposition was sued for defamation for allegedly making disparaging comments in the deposition about the opposing counsel's litigation practices in other cases. In the Sussman case out of Miami, two lawyers sued each other in a dispute that originated in a deposition where one accused the other of failing to turn over documents to which the responding lawyer said, you, sir, are a damn liar. Now, there were apparently several other people present in the deposition. Following that, there was a court hearing and then allegedly a very ugly exchange between the two lawyers in an elevator ride after the hearing. Others were also present in the elevator ride to witness that exchange. That elevator ride allegedly culminated in a personal attack by one lawyer against the other on the subject of the other lawyer's personal integrity, with accusations of improprieties in the handling of client monies, trust funds, and an expression of interest in seeing the lawyer disbarred. So at this point, it seemed like the conversation had devolved into things that were really unrelated to the subject matter of the lawsuit, which up to that point had been the center of their conversation. This exchange, including the accusation in the deposition uh, and the comment in response, led to competing slander lawsuits by the lawyers against each other, uh, one of which, as I say, was based on the comments in the deposition. In the Allstate case, out of a federal court in Nevada, physicians countersued Allstate, alleging that its lawyers had engaged in misconduct, abusive process, defamation, and business disparagement, based in part on questions during a deposition about the physician's business and personal assets. The claims filed against Allstate as a result of those deposition questions included abusive process, defamation, and business disparagement. Now, in some of these lawsuits, the resulting tort case was filed against the lawyer individually. In some, they were filed against the lawyer and the client, and in some, against the client only. I guess the question, I suppose, in a situation like that, is whether the examination appeared to be a calculated strategy by the client, using the litigator as a weapon, or perhaps something that had been cooked up by the examining lawyer alone. I believe in the Allstate case, for example, the last example I gave you, the court dismissed the claims there by saying there was no evidence that Allstate itself had orchestrated the questions asked by the attorney in deposition. So the court said those counterclaims were going to be dismissed. All right, so two critical questions that we've got to ask. First, did I use the word allegedly enough in this episode? I hope so. Second, what to make of all this? First, it's crucial as a litigator that you know your jurisdiction's rules about the litigation privilege. What is it? What events or acts does it extend to? 
and in your jurisdiction, is it absolute or qualified or non-existent? You really need to know this before you start practicing in a jurisdiction because it will inform as to the extent you can go in zealously representing your clients. If it's a qualified privilege, you might well be more circumspect in your examinations. If you enjoy an absolute privilege, on the other hand, absolute immunity, then you may opt to construct an examination that takes advantage of those broader protections. There's nothing wrong with strategies that fully exploit the permissible limits of deposition examination. But if you don't know the law in your jurisdiction as to how far you can go, you may be missing out. And if you don't know the law in your jurisdiction, you might also be exposing both you and your client to liability. You don't know where the dance floor starts and ends until you do your homework. And remember, this is a state court judicially created privilege. It's generally not statutory, and it generally only applies to state law claims. So if you're litigating federal claims in federal court, you might not have a litigation privilege at all. That was a point made by the federal judge in the Sushik case. There, the judge expressly declined to apply Florida's litigation privilege to federal FLSA retaliation claims. Ultimately, the court there did conclude that the claims against the lawyer should be dismissed, saying that the questions asked in the deposition were just not of a sort that would likely deter someone from asserting their rights. And so the questions themselves were not a sufficiently adverse act to give rise to a cause of action based on the deposition questions. But be forewarned, if the questions were of a kind uh, that might be deemed beyond the pale, a federal judge might allow that claim to proceed if the claim is based on federal law. Secondly, what do the cases tell us are things likely to get you sued? They include the following. Uh, first, questions that you and I as an examining lawyer might reasonably expect would be deeply humiliating or embarrassing to the deponent or to an opposing counsel. Criminal histories, sexual infidelities or activities, deeply painful events in a person's life, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, events that led to a person's disfigurement, or the loss of their livelihood or dignity. Diseases, disabilities, financial trauma, degrading personal or professional comments, statements that are completely false and likely to deeply wound an opposing lawyer or a deponent on a personal or professional or business level. Statements that are completely false and that are likely to cause or that do cause damage to a person's reputation, family, occupation, employability, finances, or freedom, especially where the conduct or the questions inside the deposition have ramifications uh, beyond the deposition itself. That was arguably one of the issues in the Utterback case where uh, the defending lawyer asked the plaintiff's employer, apparently the current employer, questions that seemed to zero in on the fact that the plaintiff was a disbarred lawyer and a convicted felon. All right, so let's circle back to where we started and wrap up. In broad terms, and because we see that most of these cases were dismissed in favor of the examining lawyer based on an absolute or qualified privilege, we now know that most lawsuits filed against litigators based on their deposition examinations are likely to be won by the litigator, even when the lawyer has delved into an area that some may see as at the outer fringes of fair play or beyond. But if the lawsuit filed against an examining lawyer as a result of deposition conduct isn't dismissed, we don't really know what might happen in a jury trial being decided by a dozen folks who may not take particularly kindly to lawyers in general and lawyers specifically 
who appear to have acted maliciously in inflicting harm on another person. So in addition to knowing the privilege bounds in your jurisdiction, you've also got to make sure to minimize your exposure that the examination you conduct has some pertinence or relationship to the issues in the case. I will say the courts apply this element very loosely. In other words, courts are very generous in defining what line of examination has pertinence or relevance to an issue in a case. Most of the courts we researched appeared to bend over backwards, almost preposterously so, to protect lawyers who've been sued as a result of deposition examinations. But if the line of questioning appears to have elements of maliciousness in it, it increases the odds, based on the cases we looked at, that a judge may find that a qualified privilege, at least, is an issue of fact for a jury to decide. And again, it isn't so much whether you win or lose. That's because you can expose yourself and your client to prolonged and costly litigation if you don't know the bounds of the privilege in your jurisdiction. You or your carrier may wind up paying the tab for the entire defense, not only of yourself but of your client, if the examination was of your own making and was not a directed, calculated strategy from the client. And that's true whether you represent plaintiffs or defendants. As litigators who do our homework, we often have deeply personal information at our disposal about the deponent and opposing lawyer. We often know the soft spots, but whether to use those in a deposition examination is a judgment call. Lastly, remember this. These are all technical principles. Remember that in this day and age that there is another consideration for you to ponder, and that's the risk or threat of violence in a deposition. I have practiced in jurisdictions where lawyers have been shot and killed in depositions. There's generally no protection against violence in a deposition setting. At least until the COVID pandemic, most depositions were in person and in settings where there were no barriers whatsoever that would protect you or I in the event of an attack. There are no metal detectors. There are no security guards in most depositions where civil depositions at least are taken. So even if you have an absolute immunity and the absolute legal right to ask questions that might deeply wound a deponent, you've also got to take into account your own safety and the safety of others when you prepare your examination. That's certainly something I would encourage you to do regardless of the technical rules governing the litigation privilege in your jurisdiction. All right, that's a wrap. Once again, I wanna thank all of you for subscribing. I'm absolutely thrilled at the reception to the podcast. And remember that you can get the book that this podcast is based on on Amazon and just about everywhere you buy your books.